When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of the Transfer Window Podcast, where we bring you the latest news, insight and analysis on football. I'm Ian McGarry, and in the absence of our regular host, John McFarlane, who I'm reliably informed is eating his way through most of London right now, uh, I'll be in the hot seat, and I'm delighted to welcome back from his butterfly, butterfly sabbatical, the one and only Transfer Window Guru, Dr Duncan Castles. How were the, uh, the butterflies, Duncan? Very pretty, very entertaining. Good break from you and... And McFarlane. Good. Indeed, another break from McFarlane. I'm very, very uh, pleased to say that we're privileged to be joined by uh, the esteemed football correspondent of the Sunday Times, uh, also well-known author and Michael Van Gerwen impersonator, <laughs> Mr Jonathan Northcroft. Welcome, Johnny. Thank you. Yes, it's great to, to be on this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. Ah, well, we were always like to have fans on. Um, <laughs> now, that, that, that Michael Van Gerwen reference was, of course... Uh, not just uh, sketchy and flimsy, uh, it was certainly whimsical, but uh, there's a reason because you've written a very, very um, uh, well-acclaimed and, uh, I suspect, very profitable book about your experiences at the 2018 World Cup. And uh, can you just tell us a title, Johnny, and a little bit about it? Yeah, it's Deadlines and Darts with Delhi. Um, it is, a, it is a, um, uh, well, I guess a diary of the World Cup. It started off as a as a Facebook blog, um, just just for my own amusement, I really got into it and started doing daily entries. And um, it's a bit about the football. It's a bit about what it's like to to cover a tournament. Um, hasn't actually been profitable yet because the uh, lovely lads at Backpage Press um, haven't sent me any checks yet. But apart from that, it's been, it's been wonderful. Don't, don't worry, we've got their number. Um, <laughs> so do I. So just tell us, did you actually beat Delhi at darts, or, or was it a draw? Or? Oh. Um, well, this is going to be a bit of a sob story, but um, I do play a bit of darts, or used to do anyway. Um, I quite fancy myself. I um, threw pretty well in practice, 134 and three darts. Um, and the sh- I guess the short story is I completely bottled it once uh, Once the professional sportsman appeared, once the sky cameras started rolling, and uh, once I stepped up the hockey. Delhi didn't really seem to know which part of the board he was throwing at, and... Um, even what um, what different parts meant. So he got a 25 first off and he had to ask what it was. But uh, <laughs> he got to about 54 and mm-hmm. my body completely crashed. Uh, I got 26. So, so, sounds like England in a semi-final. So <laughs> <coughs> let's not get into that again. Instead, let's dive headfirst into today's discussion. And in fact, reports coming out of Manchester United that the board at Old Trafford have decided to give Oli Gunnar Solskjaer the manager's job on a permanent basis. Solskjaer earned a 10th win in the living games with victory at Fulham last weekend. Now, Johnny, you're someone who's, uh, well, one of very few people, I think, to have interviewed Solskjaer at length. Um, mm. How have you found his start at Manchester United? And what do you think, from what you know of his personality um, and his, his method, um, how that's managed to turn things around at the club? Well, I, I haven't been... I- 
haven't been surprised at the fact that, that there's proved to be more to Ollie than, than meets the eye because I knew that anyway. I knew him from a play, from being a player. I interviewed him two or three times then. And despite being, or, or, or as well as being such a, a, a sort of very nice person and, and top professional, he was always a bit more steely and probably, I'd say, strategic than other people thought. He was never happy being the substitute. He was, he was quite... Um, Sort of fiercely proud of, of of the fact that he has a much superior record when he started games and scored. He never never sort of took that role happily. Um, I interviewed him when he was in the middle of his three year um, layoff with injury. Which the fact he got back on a football pitch is one of the greatest achievements I've seen from a, a professional footballer. He had no right to to come back. It took him three years, and and I remember him describing his his routine. Um, you know, footballers get rehab routines, and, and I think you know they, they'll probably follow them 70, 80, 90 percent. But he he followed it 100 percent. And I remember he, he was strapped up to this machine um, to sort of exercise his knee his knee ligaments, which basically meant they had to lie in bed at night on his back with this sort of knee on rollers on this machine, just putting it back and forward, like you know, through more or less through the night, keeping his missus awake. And he did that because. He was so focused and determined in getting back. And that, that just, I just, I, I remember at the time and listening to that thinking there's very few human beings that would have that amount of patience and drive to, to actually go through that and do that and still believe they could, they could get back. So all, all of that meant when he arrived, <clears throat> I thought, yes, he's, his personality is wonderful. He's going he's gonna, to you know, cheer up the football club, all that kind of stuff. So very shrewd. He's going to know um, which buttons to press and, and, he kept diaries during Ferguson's reign, training diaries, and then latterly diaries of just what he said in the dressing room. So, but I knew all that. I knew he had the kind of playbook ready. Um, but I also knew that he would be just a bit tougher and a bit sharper tactically than, than again, was expected. Did I expect him to do so well? No, not at all. It's been, it's been incredible. He surprised me with that. But I, I did think he was a, a rather good appointment and, and he was going to do pretty well and give United what they needed in, in, in the short term. The question now, of course, is is can he give them what, what's needed in the long term? Duncan, what credence would you give to the suggestion that the job is now his or do you think there's still <coughs> I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed? I'd be very surprised if they've committed to giving Solskjaer the job at this stage. Um exceptional running results and performances and a, and a turnaround in, in the way that the club is performing. But he is now hitting the the most difficult point of the season. Um, he has the, the Champions League matches against Paris Saint-Germain. Um, he may well get through those. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to look at the state Paris are in going into that match um, with Neymar uh, injured. Um, Edson Cavani um, injuring himself, taking a penalty at the weekend. They've got one of their best midfielders um, sidelined from training because he's refusing to sign a new contract. If you imagine the the the, the condition, the, the feeling at, at Old Trafford if uh, Ed Woodward had decided to do the same thing to, with David De Gea and said, "Well, until you sign your new contract uh, with us, we're, we're not going to like even train with the boys anymore." So, it's, so there's a possibility he'll get through that. Um, it has to be said that Chelsea, uh, Maurizio Sarri's um, also helping his case in terms of getting uh, them 
back into the Champions League qualification with the way their, their results have, have nosedived. So it, it all looks good. Um, the fans definitely want him to stay. He clearly wants the job. But, uh, and, and, you know, he is, as, as we've said in this podcast several times, he is the cheap option. He won't cost as much in salary. He won't cost as much in compensation, anywhere near as much as Maurizio Pochettino. And I think he'll be, maybe Johnny will have an insight in this, but I think he'll be a lot uh, easier for the Glazers to work with, a lot less demanding in terms of the transfer market than than Pochettino would be. So all of those things are in favour. But the question I would have is why make that decision now um, if you don't have to make that decision at this stage? Why not wait and see what happens for the rest of the season? Because you know Solskjaer wants the job um, and you don't need to appoint now. Um, I think he's, I think uh, Johnny talked about his cleverness, his shrewdness. I think he, he, you see that in some of the comments he's been making recently. I saw before the weekend, he talked about how um, he thought that the squad was very good, but uh, you'd need a couple of years to be able to challenge for the title, um, while simultaneously saying that um, the players were so good that he only needed to get one or two percent extra out of each of them. Um, to, to be a challenger for the title. Now, I mean, that does, does give himself wiggle room and they tick a, a lot of boxes, but I'm not sure how you quite resolve those two things in terms of why do you need two years if, it's only, if the players are only one or 2% away from, from being um, title challengers. And, and Johnny, I, I noticed on, um, on the weekend as well that uh, even, well, maybe slightly less rare than a sighting of Roman Abramovich from West London these days, one of the Glazer vice chairmen was actually in the director's mm. box at Fulham. Would you read any significance into that? Yeah, I mean, and it was Avram, not Joel. I mean, Joel Glazer's the of the brothers, the one that's more closely um, involved in the day-to-day -day running and, and is closer to Ed Woodward. Um, I, I, I think the significance is that, you know, basically things at United are going so well that even the Glazers are willing to put their heads above the parapet and, and be seen in public. <laughs> Um, because, you know, for the first time in about five years, they're not going to get abused by fans. That's part of the significance. Um, I know that, obviously, Solskjaer's agent was was there. Um, he's got a player at Fulham, Havard Nordweit, so it could well be that he... Ah, was... So he got in the ticket, is that what you're saying? <clears throat> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, there's, 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 a, there's a cover story, certainly, for, for Jim Solbach and being at the game. Um and the fact that Avram Glazer apparently went into the dressing room, I think, is quite, quite unusual too. It, it, it speaks of, as I say, how well things are going. I think Duncan's right to say that uh, Solskjaer is a much more amenable uh, character, pro probably than the last three managers, you know, than, than Van Gaal and Moyes and, and Jose Mourinho. Um, he will um, be more open to, to working with the Glazers, I guess. He, he's already, you know, chalked up a pretty formidable number of club functions that he's appeared at and stuff. Um, so all of that is, 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 is great for the owners. I think Duncan's right in, in, in reading it that, that, you know, they haven't committed yet. Um, if you speak to United, the, the sort of line is that nothing will happen till the end of the season. Um, I do think the, the, the Pochettino, the door on Pochettino isn't closed. Um, but I, I think that for the reasons said, the, the, the difficulty of extracting him from Spurs, the cost, and the fact that things are just going so well, um, edges Ollie closer and closer to the job, and, and the PSG tie could be sort of pivotal in that. 
Duncan, you said uh, a few minutes ago that Solskjaer will be cheaper, um, <clears throat> it'd be more malleable possibly in transfer market. Surely they're playing a little bit of a, a gamble and a roll of the dice here by if he you know, does, let's even see, win a trophy. You could get him now for maybe three million a year. If he wins a trophy or things get even better, <laughs> he's going to be seven million a year by the time the end of the season comes. Well, with the... <laughs> Seven million a year is not much uh, additional money to the Glazers, really, um, compared to what it would cost to, to take Pochettino. And um, they've probably committed more money than that to giving Phil Jones a new contract um, last week. So um, I, don't, I don't think it's a, it's, a, it's a great amount in the scheme of things. He's Whatever happens, whether he wins a trophy or not, he will be cheaper than Pochettino. He'll be cheaper than Zinedine Zidane, both in salary and, I think, in transfer demands. And... Um, and those, those uh, along with the fans being happy, uh, and, the, and as Johnny very um, uh, pointedly notes, the, the Glazers being able to put their head above the parapet again because the fans are happy, those are the things that really tick the boxes for the American owners. So moving uh, from, well, one side of Manchester, partly to the other, but mainly towards the, uh, Liverpool, because I'm sure we're all impressed by the way in which the two title favourites um, put away their opposition in some style over the weekend. And, and again, goal difference is all that separates them, although Liverpool have a game in hand. But um, one of the more significant developments off of the Anfield pitch uh, was last week when the club announced a world record profit for an elite-level football club, I think of around £106 million. Now, Duncan... Profits are very rare in football, um, despite the amount of money that goes into the clubs. Is this something that other uh, big clubs in the Premier League should be a bit scared of? I think it, it shows that Liverpool are getting their their books in order. Um, you know, they, they they've helped themselves by being very effective in the transfer market for several seasons now. Um, they built a new stand, uh, which has added a lot to the bottom line in terms of. Uh, match the revenue, they've increased their commercial revenue, signed a new deal with Standard Chartered. So all those things feed in. Um, it's slightly deceptive, the big profit, in that it comes in a season in which they sold Philippe Coutinho for um, a British record transfer fee um, uh, on the way out. And because of the, the, the way that transfer fees are accounted for, um, that sale, that profit goes went immediately on to the, the bottom line at Liverpool, whereas the money they spent for players to replace them gets staged over the years of their contract. So you, most of the players they've signed are, are, are signed over a five-year contract. Virgil van Dijk, let's take him as an example. So the £75 million they paid for van Dijk, only £15 million will go in last year's accounts. The rest will go through the course of his um, contract, which... And, and Liverpool's financial officer did talk about this um, when they released the details. I think more significant in those accounts is the fact that they pushed their wage bill up by 55 million um, for the, the 2017-18 season, um, which is a 26% increase. Um, the, the number actually goes above what Manchester City reported as their wage bill last season. Um, and you know that that is really impressive and and notable given that that's only half of 
half a season of Van Dyke's wages involved in that um, increase to 263 million. It's before they signed Alisson, before they signed Naby Keita, before they signed Fabinho, before they signed Shakiri, all in significant salaries, before they gave new contracts to Salah, Mani, Firmino, Henderson, Joe Gomez, Andy Robertson, and Alexander Arnold. So their the wage bill net for this season, this coming season, the next financial year they declare, should be something incredibly uh, large compared to um, just about every club in, club in the Premier League. And, and that's, I think, extremely significant in terms of a demonstration of the investment that Fenway Sports Group are being prepared to put behind um, Jurgen Klopp and the, you know, the transfer committee team of Michael Edwards. And, and I think is it also goes a long way to explaining a lot of the success they've had in the market in recent seasons because they're now putting down wages that allow them, in this case, to outcompete Manchester City for, for Virgil van Dijk. Um, City turned their nose up at the, at the wages van Dijk was asking for last January. And, and take other players and, and say, well, we'll give you as much or, not, or more than you'll get at other Premier League clubs, um, which is a very significant change to where they were three or four years ago. Johnny, you cover mm-hmm. Liverpool quite a lot, as, uh, and yeah. <clears throat> in the time that you've been covering the Premier League, certainly uh, Liverpool have not necessarily been big spenders in terms of wages or transfers. No. Now they're doing both. So why, why now? What, what, what do you feel is the, what's the catalyst, mm. if you like, for why they're suddenly pushing the boat out and investing so much money? Well, I mean, Duncan mentioned the name of Michael Edwards. I, I, I think he's, you know, almost as important as, as Jurgen Klopp. Um, at, at Liverpool, I think he's he's an enormous factor in the current um, sort of upward curve they're on, and I think what what you're seeing is the evolution of a transfer policy that um, you know began with the sort of moneyball signings. The you know Coutinho I think was only eight million pounds, and then they tried to replicate that with ones that didn't work quite so well. But you know there was still a, a moneyball element to signings of Salah and Mane and so on. Um, but I'd, I'd spent some time with Michael Edwards <clears throat> early in the season, and, and he talked about the evolution of that, um, meaning that having got what they felt was a pretty good team in place um, last year, um, the, the next stage is adding you know, the, the three or four absolutely top-class difference-making players, and they haven't been afraid. I think there's been a recognition that when you identify those players, you pay what it takes to get them in terms of wages and in terms of transfer fees. So they weren't scared to break the world record for a defender with Van Dijk and paying big wages. They weren't scared to do the same with a goalkeeper with Alisson. And then they haven't been scared to put big money down to renew those contracts. And you got to remember, Mike, Mike Edwards used to work for Daniel Levy. I think he's learned something from the, the Daniel Levy method in terms of getting your your crown jewel. I never, I never saw Daniel leave you spend eighty million on a player, John. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm talking about the renewals. The, the uh, <laughs> renew when the player's happy. Basically, I think that's the Daniel trick, isn't it? And and, and Edwards has done that really well. Um, I mean, yes, probably it's slightly misleading because Manchester City, I'm sure, have an actual bigger wage bill, but it, there's different accounting practices. But I do, you know, you're right, Ian. I've covered them for a while, and I'm, I didn't think I'd see the point where Liverpool were this high up in in the wages table. Um, it's it's a very, very well-run business at the moment, um, and 
the other thing to recognise about Edwards is he works very closely with the ownership. Him and Mike Gordon, the the, the Fenway Sports Group um, director, who who's sort of you know, tasked with running Liverpool. Him and him and Edwards are extremely close. You know, talking all the time on WhatsApp, daily calls. Um, so that recruitment model has gone hand in hand with the the, the business developments, and um, it's it, it it looks good. It looks really good from a business point of view at the moment. Duncan, I noticed on the same accounts um, that there was a, a, a large loan for the um, enlarged, for the main stand development, I think about £100 million to FSG, £10 million of which they did re- repay. That being the case with the club and that amount of debt, can they sustain this level of spending stroke wage paying? I, yeah, I don't, I don't see it being an issue at all. I mean, if you, you look at the the debt that Manchester United have, it's far more significant than that. Um, 100 million for one stand, um, a long-term mortgage on it paying off, I think I think if I remember correctly, they're paying off 10 million a year. You know, when mm-hmm. they push the revenue to right. 455 million, um, obviously that revenue is inflated with the Coutinho transfer deal, but they're getting close to the, the target figure that um, the chief executive, Peter Moore, has said, which is, you know, he said, I think earlier this year, if you're not a 500 million pound football team, you're not going to win anything. So they're getting close to that target number. Um, I don't see why they should have any problems um, sustaining that small, relatively small amount of debt paid over long term for, for um, a stand, for an infrastructure asset. Um, if they can continue to uh, sit at the top end of the Premier League and um, go deep into the Champions League. And the, the other thing to, to notice is that they are looking at developing Anfield even further. I think they're looking at taking it up to 60,000 to make it level with the Emirates and building a new training ground. So I actually think we'll see the investment continue. Yeah, and I, I don't. I think the, the contrast there with Manchester City is an important one. Liverpool are never going to have any problem filling a sixty thousand mm. stadium, so they, they they guarantee they know they can fill those seats and take the uh, additional corporate revenue off it. And I did find it quite funny last week. Um, watching some Manchester City fans trying to pick hole in, holes in the Liverpool accounts and suggest mm. that. Um, they were going to make a big loss next year because uh, because the, 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 this profit was all down to continue and, and, it, and it was all uh, uh, sort of dubious um, profit that we're making, <laughs> given given that it's all uh, they generate all their own revenue at Liverpool and uh, <laughs> that, that wasn't Josie Mourinho that was doing that, was it? <laughs> <laughs> right, I know I know who your friends are, Duncan. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, what I was going to say was, it's, well, we like to think, but we're not sure that um, our listeners are big fans of FFP because we do go on about it quite a bit on the transfer <laughs> window. But uh, when you look at the fact that they've um, made the £100 million investment in the main stand and going to build a new training ground, the fact of the matter is they can write that off against these increases in wages and the fees as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, a win-win from that point of view. Um, it's... It's part of it's you know it's also part of I think an effort to keep Klopp happy with certainly the training ground is that's 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 something he demanded um, he didn't like the fact that the the academy and the the first team train on on different sites he wanted it to be more like Dortmund I think the the stadium is a is a nut that Liverpool have been trying to crack ever since I've started covering the club and it was the first thing actually that Hicks and Gillette wanted to do but they they had 
so rather more kind of Texan grandiose ideas of of you know kind of some big spaceship style stadium planted in the middle of Stanley Park. Um, I think it's been very intelligent how the FSG have gone around the the stadium issue. They 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 did Fenway Park in in Boston and have followed a fairly similar model to that. And um, yeah, I just come back to the fact that it's it's a really well run club from a business point of view. Well. Uh, no one needs to um, be reminded of just how brilliant Manchester City were in basically deconstructing Chelsea uh, and making them look fairly humiliated, I thought, at uh, the Etihad yesterday. Um, and in many ways, you know, I think all of the uh, plaudits have already been um, granted, said and placed upon uh, the likes of Sergio Aguero's head. Uh, and indeed, Mike Dean, I thought his performance, you know, was sensational. Mm. Uh, those poses, man. That oh. guy could. That man could get a job, you know, as a superhero. The way that he plays <laughs> for penalties. But, um, but seriously, uh, let's talk about Chelsea because this is a team who have now shipped ten <clears throat> goals in two Premier League matches. Uh, Sarri looks like someone who increasingly is staring at problems on the pitch that he doesn't know how to solve. And you then, and, and you know, all credit to him for being so so blunt. He then gives press conferences and answers saying that he's never spoken to Roman Abramovich or, you know, he never hears from him. And uh, it's all up to the club. If he gets sacked, he doesn't know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I'll continue to do things my way. Now, he's either extremely brave or extremely foolish. Duncan, would you like to give us your opinion on which it might be? Um, I think sorry balls turned into sorry bollocks. I think that's... Uh, <laughs> that's, hang, that's hang on, hang, hang on. Trademark Dr. Duncan Castles. <laughs> yeah, so taking taking uh, royalties on that one for, for when he gets the eventually gets the sack. Um, look, I, I've seen some people arguing that um, this is the time for Chelsea to be patient with a manager. Uh, they brought Maurizio Sarri in to change the identity of the club, the identity of their football, and. Um, they need to give him a chance to work it through with the players he wants um, before the project will will get paid dividends as Pep Guardiola's dividend, uh, project has paid dividends at Manchester City. Um, one, when have Chelsea ever done that? When has that ever been in the club's DNA to be patient and to, to see a project through and let the manager have um, what he wants in the transfer market for multiple windows um, to get the club to where they want? Um, Clearly not. And two, is he the right guy to do it? I mean, I, I, I buy the argument that the players aren't aren't um, hundred percent correct for him. Although he he has been allowed significant buys in Jorginho, who who is key to his system, um, and he's been allowed to take Iguain, um on big wages and a, and a significant loan fee in the in the January window without any great change to how things are happening. But Let's you know just do a thought experiment. Let him have his Napoli side and put it in the Premier League and let him play the system he played at Napoli, uh, where everyone understood it, um, with a higher quality of players are bought into it. I still don't think he'd get close to winning the title with with his Napoli team. I think there's there's fundamental problems in the way he sets teams up, in the way he trains them, um, in uh, the, the physical demands he puts on them because he doesn't rotate the players. So if you if you're gonna let him do that and he comes and you and you give him all the support he can, and he still isn't going to do anything more than produce a new identity for the team, which is Sari Ball, um, the, the the pretty version. Um, what's the point? 
and, and will Roman Abramovich ever be happy with, with coming third or second and winning the occasional cup um, with a, a nicer identity football um, than, than he would be um, winning titles every three or four years with non-identity football? So it's, I, I only see this going one way. I don't see any real arguments to support Maurizio Sarri, but I'd be, I'd be interested in hearing Jonathan's view and, and what he sees as what he's done at the Premier League and where he can go from here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think there's there's two or three red flags with Sari. Um, the first has got to be man management. I mean, man management has never been more important in football. I think there's a different generation of players now, and and the ability to marshal them and and, and keep them happy has never been more important. Now, Sari is failing on that regard, and that's not my opinion. That's Sari's own opinion. He's he's he's, he's admitted, in fact, he's bemoaned the fact that he can't motivate them. On Sunday, I think we saw a team that um, weren't even following Sari Ball um, instructions, you know. So the, the the actual tactical instructions don't seem to be getting through or or if they had got through early in the season, they, they're perhaps being forgotten. And I think that's a big red flag. If, if you can't do that, then I don't see how he competes with, with the, the, the peer teams. In the league, then, then as Duncan mentioned, the, there's a fact he has been fairly well backed um, transfer-wise. Certainly, Higuain and Jorginho were were his signings. I suspect Kovacic as well. Um, you'd have to say that um, Higuain might be a might be a pretty decent short-term goal scorer, but um, isn't isn't going to solve any long-term problems. Jorginho. Nice player, but not good as the the the, the, the hype. I'm afraid. I think we've seen him for enough time to know that he he struggles when pressed, and and his his passing is good. It's, it's very good in straight lines, but it, it it's not consistently of the quality of I don't know a Kevin De Bruyne or or, or whatever. Um, those those are big issues, and then his ability to kind of. I guess manage the the terrain, manage things politically. Um, complaining about <clears throat> not getting any love from Roman Abramovich is it's as if he, you know, has been hidden away in a box for twenty years and didn't hasn't read a single word about how Chelsea are run. You can't do that. Um, he doesn't, you know, he's 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 entertaining. He's nice to listen to in, in press conferences, but I don't think he's managing the landscape very well. So all of those things put together, then. Then the, the current state of results and the nagging suspicion that, that what he does is basically a kind of, I suppose, football-wise, a hybrid version of, of, of Guardiola and perhaps a little bit of Klopp uh, and, and yet doesn't do it as well as either of those guys fundamentally suggests he's not going to beat them. Well, you said his performance was certainly low-bred compared to Pep. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, one of the things I, I was surprised in, in fact, Jimmy Carricker, uh, gave analysis uh, on, on on television in the game and said that Sarri's turned Chelsea soft. Now, that may sound like someone just having a little dig, but if you look at that first goal that was conceded, De Bruyne takes oh. the free kick completely in space. Bernardo Silva, no one's anywhere near him. He's onside. Mm. And then Hazard and um, Marcus Alonso are scrambling to get back to make up the ground. It's a very simple pass in, Sterling scores, and it's, you're already a goal down in whatever it was, three minutes. Now, that's not Chelsea. Chelsea are much better organised, they're much harder, mm. if you want to take up the opposite of uh, Jamie Carragher's criticism. They, they don't concede soft goals. That's been the way that they've actually mm. you know, won trophies over the last 10, 15 years. It's by being strong at the back. 
and yet they can, as I say, they ship four at home, uh, to Bournemouth and then six at City. They don't look like the Chelsea of old, and maybe that's something Sarah needs to address to keep his job. Well, absolutely, because if you try and shift away from an identity, you've <clears throat> you've got to make it pretty good what you're shifting to, because that that old Chelsea identity served the club very very well for under different managers for for twelve. 15 years you know so so if you're going to change that you've got to make sure <clears throat> what you're bringing in is 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 so perfect or so much better that it, that it justifies that shift and and I think you're right and I think I think that, that, that they've lost what they what you knew Chelsea would always provide and they've become a little bit easy to play against which you know under Mourinho under Conte probably the two best Chelsea's we've seen um, they weren't hard. They weren't easy at all to play against. Um, Ancelotti's football was slightly different, but he had the the bones of of Mourinho's team, and and they were still extremely hard to to penetrate at the back. Um, so the only thing I'd say is in in Sally's defence is I don't think the recruitment over the last ten years has been great. I think you're seeing the effects of of a great generation of players being replaced with inferior versions. Um, and although Sarri himself has continued that with the, bringing in the likes of, of Jorginho and, and perhaps Kovacic as well. Just very quickly, two Chelsea managers were brought in to change Chelsea's identity before. Andrew Villas-Boas tried to do it, had support removed from him almost immediately after the players started resisting, was sacked. Carlo Ancelotti tried to do it, realised that wasn't going to he wasn't going to win the Premier League title with it, went back to the old tactical system, won the Premier League title. Abramovich still wasn't happy with the, the way they were playing and, and that they got knocked out of the Champions League by Jose Mourinho with Inter um, and asked them to change it again the next season. He tried to do it, got sacked by the end of that season. So it, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and certainly not an easy thing to do with um, a squad that's not as good as the opponents. I think it's even harder to do in a, in a league that you've never... Um, coached them before and with a coach who's never won anything before. So it's it's always been a big ask and uh, I think we're going to get the answer to that ask before too long. Well, I've got a feeling maybe some of the people who we've been speaking about today will uh, turn up in our Heroes and Villains uh, <clears throat> end to this particular podcast. Now, <clears throat> I have to say it's difficult for me to ask which one of these guys to cast as their villain since they both look like Dr. Evil. In fact, they could be Dr. <laughs> Evil's twin triplets or whatever. Um, however, Duncan, since you're just back from the, the butterfly retreat, I'll give you the easy job. Can you give me, please, your hero of uh, the last few days' football? Um, my hero of, the, of this week's football is going to be the guy we've just been talking about, Maurizio Sarri, because I, I have respect for a man who has so much... I, you know, I, some people say I'm quite stubborn myself, but I, I have to have respect for a man who's got so much belief in his own ideas that he goes to Manchester City against the Pep Guardiola team that has to win the match um, with a team of disaffected players who are clearly fed up with his tactics and he decides to go and press Manchester City high um, and try and score the first goal and beat them that way. And um, it, it wasn't very clever, but you have to respect him for sticking to his principles. So he's my hero of the week. <coughs> and uh, Johnny Van Gerwen, who would be your villain of the week? <laughs> villain of the week. Well, I'm swithering between... Marco Silva, um, just because uh, uh, he's doing such a spectacularly bad job. Um, and 
Oh, I've forgotten. I forgot my other option actually. Mike so, Dean. Mike Dean. Say Mike Dean. <laughs> no, I love the point. I thought. I thought. I thought you're right. It's a bit, bit superhero, but also a bit men's catalogue as well. Super villain. <laughs> Super villain. Yeah, he, I think he could be like country tweeds, you know, pointing at a dog or something like that. But oh, yeah, been out of career yeah. From, probably better. No, than let's, say, let's, say, let's say Marco Silva. I just, I, 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 I feel like I've been. I, I'm giving him a bit of a kicking at the moment, but I just think he's been very well backed. He's been very well hyped. Um, he's taken, we're talking about removing Chelsea's identity. I think he's, he's, he's completely removed Everton's identity, not replaced it with anything. Um, and I feel on behalf of Everton fans, a great football club, and I think they've been really let down this season. But maybe Farhad Mashiri's got to come into the, the, uh, the blame villainous category as well for that. Well, I'm sure you'd all agree, with pundits as entertaining and as insightful as these guys, time certainly flies and we're going to have to bring this particular edition of the Transfer Window podcast to close. It just leaves for me to say thank you very much to Duncan and Johnny, guys. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you. But you can continue the debate on Twitter. We have our own account, at Transfer Podcast. And our pundits are at Duncan Castles, at Jay Northcroft, and I'm at GarboSG. We're available on all of your favourite podcast platforms. And if you like what you hear, and let's face it, what's not to love people, then please log into iTunes, give us a five-star review, and that allows us to reach much more people easily, and we can keep the debate going amongst an even bigger network. That's all for now. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.